We'll be in John chapter 8 this afternoon, and we'll be looking at the first 11 verses in chapter 8 of the book of John. Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery, And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, testing him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground, as though he heard them not. And when they continued asking him, he lifted himself up and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they who heard it being convicted by their own conscience went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last, And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted himself up and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Shall we pray? Loving Father, we do thank you for the reading of the scriptures. Thank you, Father, that you would bless us with your word this afternoon. We do pray, Lord, your Holy Spirit, bring the word of God to our own hearts and help us to see here of the application and how that it may be applied even to our own lives and of the great work of grace and mercy in the heart of our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we look at this passage, I suppose it is one of the more familiar passages, especially um, as many love to quote it, uh, concerning casting the first stone. Uh, For many different reasons, this is quoted. And we uh, know of the account, perhaps, uh, upon the much often use of it. And, of course, uh, being familiar with the Gospel of John, we see this account here of the woman who was taken in adultery. Um, Let me just say at the beginning, uh, many do not recognize the authenticity of the account. That it is not in some of the manuscripts and others it does include it. Um, But even though that may be the case, we find there is nothing in the passage which is objectable to what the scripture has to say about uh, anyone taken in this kind of situation or of the Lord's words which he uses to um, explain the situation as which are given here. Um, So we'll look at that idea and and, uh, give some some thought to it uh, uh, this uh, this afternoon. But first of all, let us just... uh, 
look at the outline that I have here and consider the thoughts uh, for today. First of all, Jesus teaches at the temple. So all this was a well-known fact, that Jesus went to the temple and taught regularly. And so he did go to the temple, um, and uh, he spent some time there, of course, teaching, which occasioned this opportunity, as is accounted here, uh, concerning the scribes and the Pharisees coming to him. And so secondly, they asked Jesus to judge a woman taken in adultery. Now we know adultery was a very serious offense. It was a really a capital punishment in many cases, not all cases, but in many cases it was capital punishment and so the, the person or persons were often killed. Um, thirdly, uh, they test Jesus to accuse him. This uh, particular narrative reveals the fact that uh, uh, the scribes and the Pharisees wanted the occasion to be somewhat of a test of the Lord to see what he would say upon this because it was clearly taught in the Mosaic Law that under certain uh, condition that a woman taken in adultery would of course be stoned. And so they wanted to see what he would say. And uh, they wanted to uh, this occasion to be somewhat of a test in his in his teaching uh, to see if they might find some means of accusing him. Uh, fourthly, uh, if you are without sin, cast a stone. Well, that's in the, that is the gist of what uh, Jesus, of course, ultimately says to them. He that is without sin should cast the first stone. And uh, we know stoning was also a means of punishment. And uh, when it resulted in death, of course, it was, of course, uh, the ultimate uh, uh, execution, as we might say. Very kind of a cruel sense of execution. Um, Stephen being stoned. But there were other people who, of course, fell to this fate. Uh, and then lastly, they were all convicted and left her alone. Uh, this being most interesting, as we recognize the account revealed that after Jesus had made such a pronouncement to them, not commenting on the law itself, because all knew what the law said, he simply made this statement that if there was any among the crowd or men who were accusing this woman of adultery, they should be the first ones to cast a stone to her, at her, to, to execute her. And uh, they left. Uh, and they left her alone, of course, with Jesus. But then the other people were still there, of course. Uh, but the accusers had, had left. Uh, which means they did not even exact the law that they were trying to test Jesus upon. Uh, so this is an interesting uh, situation here in John's narrative. And I think we can draw some conclusions from it and... Uh, learned by it as well. So, uh, first of all, uh, let us consider that man likes to uh, justify his own actions while uh, condemning the actions of others. And this is, seems to be the natural case within the depravity of man is that we excuse many times our own sins while we are more than willing to condemn the sins of others. We would probably also note in the 
culture of the day here in the first century, of course, uh, the woman held a much lesser position than the men did. And uh, this helps us to understand why they brought the woman and not a man too. Because obviously adultery cannot be perpetrated with only one person. There has to be a man. Uh, but yet he is, nothing is said concerning the man. And so um, this woman is uh, a pitiful sight, you might say, to be brought and to be cast down, as it were, in front of these, of this, of these people like a spectacle. Um, and uh, we find, you may find the classical art picture on the front of the bulletin which shows this woman in a very pitiful state um, down on the ground and the accusers behind her and Jesus is stooped down and he is writing on the temple pavement there at the temple. Um, and so we find that um, we cannot help but have some sense of compassion unless one is very hard-hearted toward a person. And Jesus is, is, of course, one who shows greatest compassion to people who are in great need. And, by the way, Jesus did not excuse the woman's impropriety. He did not excuse that. He didn't, in other words, Jesus did not excuse sin simply because he chose to answer the accusers the way that he did. And in, in other words, we can show mercy and grace unto others without excusing sin. And we always ought to do that. We always ought to be willing to show grace and mercy to others without excusing sin. Sin, of course, is a transgression against the law of God, and all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It is a universal soul's disease, according to Psalm 103. Uh, our soul's diseases. And so we recognize that, that each person is, has enough guilt to go around. Um, so here we have this case, this case and... and uh, we know at the beginning that this case is a test case against Christ. So let us look at the verses here. First of all, uh, let's begin reading with chapter 7, verse 53. And every man went unto his, his own house. Then it says, Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives. Well, in other words, Jesus didn't go unto his own house. As Luke tells us, it was the uh, typical uh, plan of Christ was to come to the temple each day and teach uh, as much as he could. And we find that uh, Jesus then is really living um, at the Mount of Olives, not in a house, but just out in the open. Perhaps he was under a tree. Um, maybe his disciples accompanied him, I don't know. It could very well be, um, but he himself resorted to this sec more secluded place, um, and there he would spend the evening 
and then he would return to the Temple Mount area the next day and he would resume his teaching in the temple with the people coming unto him. And so it says in verse 2, And early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And as was typical of the posture of teaching, um, he would sit down as one who would teach others, and he would gather people around him. We find Jesus teaching on the mountainside when there was the feeding of the 5,000. We find him teaching his disciples um, in private areas, and he is seated among them and teaching them. We find him now in the temple, and he is seated, and he is teaching those who came unto him. And, of course, with the somewhat notoriety of the Christ, we find that the scribes and the Pharisees watched his movement, and uh, so they were aware that he would come during the day to the temple and would teach. And so they came unto him. And so um, he teaches at the temple. And so um, we, as we read on here in verse 3, And the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. Now, uh, the scribes, of course, were those who had the particular occupation of, of um, uh, writing or copying, copyists, really, of the manuscripts. I suppose the scribes were also perhaps involved in keeping traditional records, as uh, in the Sanhedrin or as in the Talmud and various uh, uh, types of traditional Recording that may take place within a Jewish record. Uh, but they were copyists. They copied the sacred scriptures, and so they knew the scriptures very well. And so the, the scribes knew what was going on here. They, they knew what it meant for, to, for a woman to be taken into adultery. And then we have the Pharisees, of course, are mentioned here. And the Pharisees, being a member of that religious sect, called the Pharisees as opposed to the Sadducees, um, we find that these two groups um, were somewhat um, perhaps at odds with one another in some sense, kind of like the Democrats and the Republicans, you might say, only this is in the, the religious uh, sense of the of Judaistic order. And we find that the Pharisees were officials and they were teachers themselves and uh, they knew the law very well, and they were able to um, pray effectively and, and in public, and they were well-respected people, Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, um, we find uh, Gamaliel, um, and you know these various well-known people. Uh, so the Pharisees were, were well-known people, and, and so these two groups of people... Um, we might think, now, did they just kind of in an impromptu way find this woman all of a sudden early in the morning and bring her to the temple area where Jesus would be teaching? And probably we would have to say, well, that is very curious, isn't it, indeed? No, they, they probably planned this, knowing that Jesus would be there, uh, knowing that uh, he would teach the people 
and they looking for an occasion to test him, um, they brought this woman. Now, we, don't, we aren't told the details, where she came from, how they uh, caught her, as it were, uh, just what uh, the situation is. But um, whether, ever, whether there ever is impropriety in a city, generally the people know where it goes on. And um, it may not have been very difficult to find such a person who is uh, living on the darker side of life and is able to be taken, as it says here, in the very act. Um, And we find that since uh, the scribes and the Pharisees were the religious people of the day, and it appears that when a woman did some sense of impropriety, it stood out much more than a man uh, in this particular culture that we're talking about here. Um, and uh, I won't go into the ramifications of why that would be, except uh, it was a patriarchal culture, very strongly patriarchal, and the woman being a very important part of the home, uh, to find impropriety among the woman was to, in a sense, to destroy the nucleus of the family. It was to downgrade the nucleus of the family. Uh, so anyway, they seize her, they seize her and bring her uh, unto the temple area where Jesus is teaching. Jesus is seated among the people, and they bring her, and they cast her in the midst of the situation. And so we, we find her being cast into the, the temple mount, uh, very pitifully looking, um, and, and she is to be judged by the people who brought her. Okay, so we have this sense then that that, that they asked Jesus to judge the woman taken in adultery. And then thirdly, they test Jesus to accuse him. What is Jesus going to say at this time? Well, um, we find that the narrative begins to explain that Uh, Jesus simply uh, stooped down on the ground and began to write. But before we get into that in particular, let me just explain uh, the two or three occasions or more where this kind of punishment would take place. First of all, a man with a neighbor's wife, Leviticus 20, verse 10. If a man took a neighbor's wife and she lie with him it was subsequently considered to be uh, punishment by death, by stoning. Secondly, a betrothed virgin. Now, in this particular case, it would be a a woman who was betrothed to a man, um, but she was still without legal marriage. Now, she is taken by someone, by by a man, and that as well would be considered to be a execution, by execution. Uh, thirdly, a woman taken in the city with a man and didn't cry out. Now in this particular case, uh, the punishment was by stoning as well, and sometimes even a sword thrust through after being stoned. 
And in most of these cases, it wasn't just the woman, it was the man as well. But if the woman didn't cry out and she was in a, in a public area where she could, you see, it was considered to be complicit. She was complicit in it. Uh, so that would be um, a possible reason. Uh, fourthly, a woman taken in the field with a man and in this particular case, it would be like an outlying area where even if the woman cried out, she could not be heard. In this case, it was not a to-be-death by execution because it is considered that the woman did cry and she couldn't be heard as opposed to the woman who's in the city who could cry out and be heard. And then there is another uh, particular case which I didn't note here, but... Um, if one was a woman, a, a, a daughter of a priest, um, sometimes she was burnt alive, and that was a really harsh one. Uh, and um, and that would be in the sense of a virgin as well. She being a daughter of a priest, and she would suffer being burnt alive. Uh, but uh, even these particular cases. In other words, the scribes and the Pharisees, they would have been fully aware of all of these cases and any other possible cases that, that may be evident within the Mosaic law. They would know it. And so these scribes and these Pharisees brought this woman to Jesus. And remember, uh, the, the importunity of them coming as they did was probably not on the spur of the moment. They had somehow planned this and brought this pitiful woman before the Lord Jesus. Which also causes us to remember this, that if they had truly found a woman taken in this impropriety, why wouldn't they have taken this woman before their own counsel? and judged her in a lawful manner that was prescribed, why then should they bring her to Jesus at all? And where is the man? The man is nowhere to be seen in any of this. And so there are many questions as to uh, the, the motive behind them bringing this woman to Christ. And so as we see this begin to unfold... Um, in verse, verse 4, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? Now considering everything I've told you about these variant cases, they make this statement that such should be stoned. And so, in other words, there's a lot left out of the commentary about this woman. There is a lot left out. Much more left out than should be if there was to be a, a true legal case. And then also the law required that there be two witnesses concerning any kind of judgment of this nature. In other words, one witness was not enough. The law required two witnesses. And though the, though the scribes and the Pharisees brought this woman and cast her down in front of Christ, we do not find any named 
witnesses. In other words, they don't say, we have two witnesses, uh, and we, we want you to comment to the extent of this case. There is no, there is no mention of that at all. So there is much left without. Um, verse 6, this they said, testing him, that they might have to uh, accuse him. They might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. Now the phrase here, as though he had, uh, as, he, as though he had heard them not, is not included in the, even in this narrative that is put in. And most of in the manuscripts. There's some manuscripts leave it all out, other manuscripts include it. But uh, that particular phrase is not even there at all. That is a supplied phrase. Um, because nobody knows why or to what extent Jesus was thinking when he just simply stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger. We just see that he does this. And most uh, think that it is just simply uh, act Jesus, Jesus acting as though he, is, he has a great aversion to what they are saying at all. It's like he uh, is not that interested in the case. Because Jesus knew the, the heart of the people. Jesus knew. Well, remember, this is, this is the Son of God. This is Jesus. Uh, and he knew what was in the heart of man. The sinfulness that was in the heart of man. And so he knew. Uh, as to what he is doing when he stoops down, most will just say he is kind of uninterested in what they have to say. And he is acting as though he is somewhat uninterested in what they have to say. And so many people come up with various things that, well, he must have been writing this or he must have wrote that. Or, but there is all the speculation is for naught because nobody knows what he wrote on the ground. And this is the only account ever in the Bible that Jesus ever wrote anything. <laughs> so, uh, so it's kind of difficult to draw more conclusions than what may be um, indicated or implied uh, by his posture, as we might say. He's, he, and he's, remember, he is teaching before the multitude or the people who came to him. This is a group of people, tribes and Pharisees, they come and they cast this woman down in front of him and they immediately ask him um, concerning the judgment on her. And uh, so he doesn't really give much attention to them, really. Um, he doesn't quote the Mosaic law or anything. Uh, he doesn't quote any commandments. He, he doesn't do anything of this nature. Uh, he doesn't say, well, you should go to the Roman authorities because you are under Roman rule and they have the right of execution and you don't. Remember, when it came time to crucify Christ, they, wouldn't, they didn't want to take the responsibility of crucifying Christ themselves. Uh, they gave it to the Roman authority. And the Roman authority finally had to say, um, who do you want? Do you, do you want Barabbas? Do you want Christ? And of course they cried out Barabbas, but they went under the authority of Christ, under uh, the authority of Pilate rather, and they, uh, the Roman rule came down against uh, Christ. So 
there was a lot of things at play here. You might even say, well, there's a religious element and there is also a political element. Sometimes religious and political things come together uh, and are commingled. And we find that the case really here as well. Uh, though the scribes and the Pharisees bring this, this uh, incident before Christ, they are reluctant to take responsibility themselves because they could have done it by taking it to their own Sanhedrin or council and carried out whatever was necessary. But no, they chose to do this. Which means that the actual law of adultery may have fallen into dis disregard at the time. Now remember the scribes and the Pharisees were all good about ceremony. But when it came right down to the actual nitty-gritty of um, following the law uh, in a way that they themselves would be held responsible, they were not so good at that. Um, and uh, we find that, the, that they had some sin on their own hands. <clears throat> and we should remember that they were trying to murder Jesus. They were trying to kill him. And uh, as we know, murder was against the law and the commandment as well. And so verse 7, So when they continued asking him, he lifted himself up and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. Now again, according to the law, um, what was to take place was that the people who found this individual in this uh, case of impropriety, they were to make themselves known as the uh, people who were testifying against this individual, another witnesses against the person. And they were supposed to be the ones to cast the first stone. Uh, those witnesses who said, I caught her. I know, I know that this woman did this. And, and so... Uh, and, uh, so Jesus uh, uh, makes this clear to them. They, have, they already have something in their own law which is supposed to uh, justify guilt. And so why would they bring in Jesus into it? Why was, they, why was they asking Jesus to justify guilt when they already had that built into their own law? to justify guilt. Uh, and so, again, uh, he says, he that is without sin, let him cast the first stone. Now, um, in the scriptures, we, we do have some, some indication here that God knows, not only knows the hearts of people, but we find that his word is very powerful to convict. So, for instance, in the book of Hebrews, we read, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Now the reason I mention this verse is because, remember, Jesus knows the thoughts and the intents of the heart. So, though Jesus is stooping down and writing something on the ground, and nobody knows what he is writing, remember that Jesus is the living word of God. Jesus is the Logos. 
If anybody can bring conviction in the heart of someone, and he is in, the very, in, in their very presence, and he is right there, he would be the one able to bring conviction upon them. And so the very act which he made of stooping down and writing the word of God upon the ground brought conviction to them. Now what that word is, we don't know. But whatever it is, the scriptures testify that it is able to bring conviction upon the hearts of people. Jesus being the Son of God, the very living Word of God, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And so we know that Jesus had this great ability as the very Son of God to bring conviction. And it is my thought that if there was anything written when he wrote, it was enough to bring conviction upon them. And so he did say to them, he did say to them, let him first cast a stone at her. He that is without sin, let him first cast a stone at her. And so, um, the next passage I'd like to refer to is, again, in the Gospel of John. And uh, it is chapter 16 and verse 8. Chapter 16 and verse 8. And here we read these words. And when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they believe not on me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and ye see me no more, of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. So though it was expedient for Jesus to go away and there would be a comforter come, within Christ was this very ability as the Son of God and the Word of God, the divine Logos, to bring upon individuals a conviction of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of course, it would fully come when the, when the Holy Spirit would come and the Comforter would be given. And so what I'm saying is this. They being in the presence of Jesus, Jesus stooping down to write as the divine Logos, it doesn't matter what he wrote, it matters that he did, and that he spoke to them, and that he brought a conviction upon their hearts of their own sin. And some of the commentators even say this, that when he said that, he was indicating, you who have committed adultery like you accuse this woman, if you don't have sin, you cast the first stone. That gets a little bit more pointed, doesn't it? Although we 
don't have a clear proof to say that's what he was saying, but some of the commentators will even say that. Because we know within the heart of man, there is every sense of being able to do the most heinous types of sins, given the opportunity. And just because one calls themselves religious doesn't mean that they are above sin. Sin is a systemic part of the nature of man. Since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, we all sin. There is none righteous, no, not one. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And we find that the wages of sin is death. Thankfully, we can quote the other part of that verse, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. But we find that does not excuse sin. It only means that we have a means whereby we can know the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ. And so this particular case is one uh, which is very interesting as we look at it. In verse 9, and they who heard it being convicted, being convicted by conscience, even if you leave out the words their own, which is supplied, just read it, and they who heard it being convicted by conscience, by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, the, those who were the eldest among them, even among to the least, and Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. So, in other words, this, the picture then now is all of the accusers, scribes and Pharisees, who came and cast this woman down before Christ, leave. One by one, from the oldest person down to the youngest person, they all leave. The woman is still there in a very pitiful state in front of Christ. In this public arena of the temple where others are looking on and are hearing what is going on here. And now what is Jesus going to say? When Jesus had lifted himself up from his position of stooping down and writing and saw none but the woman... He said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Now, of course, the accusers were those that brought her there. They were the ones who were condemning her. Uh, Hath no man condemned thee? No one evidently had picked up a rock and threw it at her. None had condemned. All had left being convicted of their own sin. Perhaps even of this very same sin that they were convicting her of. Now remember, they were all men. So there's every reason to consider they had done as bad as what they were complaining she had done. In verse 11, she said, No man, in other words, no man accuses her, Lord. And the idea of Lord here probably is just saying master or teacher um, uh, a statement of respect. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more. 
Now, we might ask the question, well, why didn't Jesus condemn her? Well, if we know of why Jesus came into the world, he came not to condemn. He came to bring the message of grace and truth to the hearts of people, that they might know that the kingdom of God was at hand, that he was the Christ, and that he came to redeem his people from their sin. The second time Jesus comes, it will be to condemn, to judge, if you will. But not, this, not now. And because he says this doesn't mean Jesus excuses the sin. Uh, like uh, most of the usage of this particular incident, he that is without sin casts the first stone. It is quoted by many, unsaved and saved alike, I suppose. They sometimes use it to excuse sin. Jesus does not excuse it. He goes on to say, go, uh, sin no more. Go and sin no more. And so Jesus uh, seeks to set her on the right course in life, in other words, to tell her that sin is not a profitable way to live. And it will certainly, it has certain deadly consequences. Um, in this particular case, it was execution. And so he tells her, go and sin no more. And so the Lord, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, the one who came with the greatest amount of compassion to the hearts of people, expresses compassion to her. He does not forgive her. He doesn't say, I forgive thee, go and sin no more. He just says, go and sin no more. Because the responsibility of sin is ultimately laid upon the heart of each individual. And that is the thing that convicts us most, isn't it? Whenever we do something that convicts us in our hearts, we know we have sinned. We don't have to really look it up in the Bible unless we desire to corroborate it. But we know. We just know immediately that that was wrong and that we should not do it. And whatsoever is not of faith is sin for the believer. For the unsaved, uh, when they commit sin, of course, it becomes just another sin upon the great pile of Trans transgressions against God. But for the believer, it is that we are convicted in a very real way that we might depart from it and repent and turn away. And of course, that's what he basically says to her. Repent and turn away. Uh, he says, go and sin no more. Repent. Um, as to the particular occasion here, we know that she was not a believer, no more than the scribes and Pharisees were believers, and perhaps even the multitude who called themselves perhaps disciples of Christ, not in the strictest sense would we call them believers. Why? Because Jesus was laying down the John the Baptist uh, prophecy that one had come who was called the Lamb of God, to take away the sin of the world. And so, in other words, it was a time when the Messiah was, was being preached as, as the one who had come. 
The kingdom of God was at hand. And so all that heard the gospel of God at this time were being called to repent and turn unto the Lord Jesus Christ who had come into the world. His death would soon take place upon the stage of human history. And he would pay the price of the sin of mankind. Uh, He would take it upon himself, the penalty of sin he would bear in his own body upon the tree. And he would suffer that that, uh, terrible death of, of the cross and shed his precious blood for us. And so Jesus extends his mercy and grace in the words that he says to her and calls her to repentance. And so they were all convicted of their own sin and they left her alone. And Jesus did not convict her, condemn her, though he did not excuse her sin. He extended the opportunity of repentance to her to go and sin no more. Uh, I don't know, as, as we think about this, we might say, well, what do I do with this by way of application in today's world and what is going on in our own world today? And I think the best thing to say is that since we are not proper judges to judge righteous judgment other than what the scripture has to say on a subject, and even then we are not as in the place of God Though some today put themselves there, such as the Pope, who calls himself a vicar of Christ, um, we are not. And so we need to extend as much mercy and grace to people as possible. Not to condone the sin of others, but just to bring a true sense of grace and mercy in the words that we have to say to them. And if somebody is in sin... Even within the church, we know that the Apostle Paul um, got after the church members more than he, I guess he did after the convicted person in the church in Corinthians. He really said to the the church members, you're doing wrong by not telling this person that he is doing wrong. (laughs) And so he got after them first, and then he says, you should... Well, you should even go and restore this person now that you've told him that he's done wrong. You should restore that person to your fellowship again, if, if at all possible. You should restore that person. And those who do sin and one is separated from them, of course, are left to their sin. I suppose the ultimate case of it is, is when in the New Testament some were... Uh, given over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Now, that is, in that particular case, it seems to be that they simply left them to their sin because they would not repent of their sin and they could not be received back into fellowship or they would not repent and turn away. There always seems to be enough sin to go around. As I have said, we should not excuse sin. 
but neither should we put ourselves in the place of those who can righteously judge sin unless it is in a disciplinary sense in the church and then it should always be balanced out with restoration to the person who has some sin which needs to be dealt with. So to stone or not to stone You see, the Pharisees wanted to make it that black and white to Jesus, that they might accuse him. But Jesus shows grace and mercy and calls this woman unto repentance, though she no doubt was guilty. But then so was the man who wasn't there with her. Well, that's it for this afternoon. I trust it's given you something to think about, as it has to me. Shall we pray? Loving Father, we do ask for your grace and mercies, Lord, to each of us, that as we face the difficulties of life, and as we are often tempted or tested, or under some trial, or even fall to some sin, that we may find ourselves coming before you, Lord, seeking that mercy and grace of God, which is ever renewed to us daily. And we thank you, Father, for it, that we also may repent on a daily basis or whenever is necessary and find that restoration of hope and peace in our hearts. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.